It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L. D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. We have Miss Pamela Whitley, all the way from Baton Rouge, Jaguar Land, to DC, Washington, D.C., back to Baton Rouge. Welcome home, and welcome to Count Time, Ms. Whitley. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <clears throat> we want to bring you on today because we think you have a wonderful, uh, a great experience, and you have a whole lot to share to the community in the, in those, in the way of aviation. Aviation. Now, let's talk, now you went to, what, what high school you went to? Robert E. Lee High School, which is now Liberty High School. So you went to Robert E. Lee? Yes, I did. Okay, now, what year did you, what, what you graduate from Robert E. Lee? 1982. 82. And you went to, let's okay, now you grew up where? I grew up uh, in Easy Town, okay. which is right by Capitol High School off of 22nd Street. I 22, 23, 24, 25, 25th. Exactly. Okay, I know, okay, I'm familiar with that. Now you, and you end up going to Robert E. Lee, that's the school of choice, or it was a uh, good district? Yeah, it was a school of choice. Uh, my mother taught at Kenilworth, so I oh, went to Kenilworth so you came from in educators. middle school, all right. and I wanted to follow all of my friends, so I went to Lee High School. Now, who, who is your mother? My mother was Yvonne Jean Simmons Whitley. Yvonne Jean Simmons Whitley, and your dad? My dad was Bernard Whitley. So neither one are, are, are here today? Neither one are here today. And uh, how many siblings, brothers and sisters? I have one sister and one brother. Okay, and they're still here? They're still here. Your grandfather was a principal. Yes, sir. At what school was that? At Valley Park Middle School. And where is that? In Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Baton Rouge. So you came from a, your grandfather, and how old would would he have been? Uh, he would have been over 100, uh, probably would have been a I don't want to guess, maybe about 110, maybe. So he got, he, your grandfather had a college degree in the... From, from Grambling State University? In the early 1900s. Yes. So what about his his parents? Where, where did they, were they uh, educators too, or they was... Uh, they weren't so educated, his parents weren't educators. Uh, they were farmers, I think. Where what area? In North Louisiana, Shoedruff, up in that area. I'm not familiar with Shoedruff. Mm -hmm. So you got you come from a great family then, and your dad owned what kind of business? Uh, when I was a young, when I was born, my father owned a Texaco gas station. Where was that located? That was located in Baton Rouge on Acadian Thruway. Okay, where where on Acadian Thruway? Acadian Thruway and Boardwalk. I can place it. Oh, right, where Capitol High used to be around that area? Mm -mm. Not far from there, but on Acadian. Um, Mate, around Fairfield? Mm -hmm. I remember those mm -hmm. areas there. And your, so your dad was in his own gas station back then? Yes. And how long he, he was in business? He was in business mo almost all of his life. He was in the gas he had the gas station for 
many years, and then he became a independent insurance broker. Okay, you've been pretty versatile, did huh? mm-hmm. Go from one extreme to the other. And your mom was a teacher mm-hmm. and principal? No, she wasn't a principal, but she was an educator uh, okay. here in East Baton Rouge Parish. She taught at several schools, uh, Scotlandville, uh, Kenilworth, and did her, her last tour at Baton Rouge High. Now, you also say that, you know, you was a debutante. How old were you then? Uh, I was 16 or 17. And, and you showed me a picture that you were surrounded by some strong women. Yeah, uh, just recently I was kind of going through some old family photos and I found a photo that I, I didn't even remember taking, but it was at one of my debutante balls. And how old were you then? Uh, see the 16 or 17. Yeah, I just kind of marveled at the fact that looking at the picture, it was really all of the women that created me uh, and made me who I am today. So. Of course, my mother was in the picture. My two grandmothers were in the picture. Uh, my aunts on my mother's side, my mother's sister, my aunt who's still living, and uh, aunts on my dad's side, and, and the great Sadie Keel, uh, who was one of the founders of Alpha Tau Chapter, Delta Sigma Theta, and a very good friend of my grandmother. So. You, you look back uh, when you get a certain age and you say, how did I become the person that I am? And you, you realize that it was the steps that you've taken and the people that touched you along the way. And people that lift you up and, mm-hmm. and guided you and pointed you in those mm-hmm. directions. And that's a powerful picture. When you started, started explaining to me your mother, both grandmothers, like, were they all Delta? Your grandmother was not Delta. No, so. not all of them. <laughs> okay, not all of them were Deltas, but they, uh, the concept was they, they all were there uh, to support me and served in some role uh, as I kind of transitioned. All right, then. All right. So we want to we wanna take this journey with you because you have done some great and remarkable things that the people in, in the community do not know about, nor familiar with, nor knew what you have done over the years, because you left the state. Yeah. And that's why they say we need to keep everybody in the state, which is going to be impossible. We need to do a better job of keeping Louisiana people here in the state. Now, you end up from Robert E. Lee. What was your story after Robert E. Lee? Well, I'll start by saying while at Robert E. Lee, uh, I was a student that was, you know, in some ways unsure of myself. And I can remember uh, in 11th grade, I had a uh, algebra teacher, a white male, and he he wanted me to take this test that they were giving to test uh, people's kind of performance level in mathematics. It was a voluntary test, but it was really to kind of feed the system. Uh, And I was a rebel even back then. So I said, well, I'm not taking, what am I taking this test? I'm not taking this test. So, you know, I ended up very uh, rebelliously taking the test without opening a book. You're going to show them. I didn't open a book. Just went in and said, okay, you want me to take this test? I went in, took the test. It was like a four-hour test. And I scored four points away from being a mathematical genius. Four points. So my confidence in myself began there. In 11th grade. <laughs> yeah, in, in high school. I mean, I 
had gone to, you know, educated in the school system, went to uh, Berean Seventh-day Adventist School, uh, went to middle school at, you know, Kenilworth. But as you said, I came from a family of educators. Uh, my grandfather, my mother's father, was in the first group of blacks to become principals in East Baton Rouge Parish School System. Your grandfather? My grandfather. Oh, you got some history. So education is in our, in our background. So, you know, being at Robert E. Lee kind of steered towards STEM at that time. They didn't call it that, but I was, you know, very uh, into the math, the science, you know, physics and decided that I wanted to be an engineer. And I started to look at, you know, what the possibilities were. Because engineer was never in the scope of the realm of your thought process before then? It yeah, kind of, I, I was very familiar with engineers because I had a family friend who had studied engineering at Southern, you know, several years before me. So very familiar with it, but I was always intrigued with how things worked. You know, I, my mother taught history and English, so I wanted to stay away from those things. I wanted to do the opposite. <laughs> uh, and it, it, you know, served me well, but I ended up at Southern University, uh, studied electrical engineering. It is still one of the most enjoyable, notable experiences of my life. I met lifelong friends. I learned not just engineering. I learned politics. I learned the science of dealing with people. And the foundation that I built uh, in my five years at Southern University really carried me throughout my career. Well, Southern, I know at one time, had one of the top engineers, engineer program in the country. Yes, and, and still does. Southern, you know, uh, we have a excellent program, and it's very evident in where the graduates are. You know, you like doing podcasts, uh, but it would be an interesting story to map out the journey of Southern's engineering students. You know, there are people that are leaders in just about every industry, you know, you'll see them at homecoming in shorts and T-shirts, and you have no idea what they do. <laughs> right, right. I, I've noticed that many, for many years that Southern universities, Southern, and I'm going to have to say Grambling too, HBCUs have produced so many leaders around this country, around this world. Yes. And that's, that's been one of the most intriguing things to me. And uh, the relationships that they fostered in the, in the camaraderie that, that the HBCUs have and, bring, and they bring to each other. So it's been a lot of great, of great things that I've seen happen, but also it's the other stuff happens too, right? But it's the, it's the beauty of, of going to HBCU. What, okay, you right down the street from LSU at mm -hmm. Robert E. Lee. You bypass LSU because evidently if you scored that high on a math, a, a four-hour math test, that people come looking for you, I would assume, right? Mm -hmm. So how did you choose Southern University? Uh, it was in my blood. You know, um, I, my, both of my parents went to Southern. Uh, my grandmother uh, went to Southern. You know, I actually attended Southern's football games from a little child. So I've had a season book to the football games since I was four years old. 
So all of that was innate in me. I never thought about going anywhere other than Southern. I thought about Howard for a moment, but it it was just a moment. So you, you knew you was going to be a Jaguar. I knew I was going to be. I was already a Jaguar. And that, you got Jaguars all around the house still <laughs> yeah. keeping it alive. Keeping I it was already a Jaguar. Yeah. Very proud. And you still wearing it proud. We're still wearing it I'm telling you, because you got Jaguars everywhere. We got two on the table right now. We look at that. It's just, and it's a beautiful thing. And, and I've always looked for an opportunity to tell the Southern University story to others. And, you know, it was very evident. I worked for a white male uh, who had never been to the South. And he came to work one Tuesday morning and he said, Pam, was that Southern's band on the game last night? <laughs> so, you know, you look and you introduce people to things and they start to open their eyes to those possibilities. And Southern have always, for musically wise, mm -hmm. has, has been on the big stage for many, many years and have shared it. But we know it's much, much more to Southern than just the band. Oh, of course. So, you of know, course. But, but the music is who we are as a people, yes, really. So and it's part of our culture that we, it's going to shine no matter what else happened. Our music, our culture for us, that is going to shine. But Southern University and its people and the students over the years have been dynamic because the creativity of, the, of Southern University and the people there. And you have been a great example of that, because you moved on from, okay, now you majored in? Electrical engineering. Now, so, so now you're in 11th grade, not sure about what's, although you come from a, uh, a line of educators, but you're still in a place where you're not sure where you're going from here. Because mm -hmm. you say you was a rebel, now you was a, now that, that means that you at least had rebel sold off. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of rebel are you talking about there? <laughs> yeah, not, not the Lehigh kind of rebel. <laughs> okay, so we, you know, we need to kind of clear this one up now. So you said that you was in a place that I'm you I'm going to always question the system. All right, then, okay. Well, well, you sound like you and I got a lot in common. That's where I'm at. Then. So now, but you're in 11th grade. We know it's a pivotal part for most young people. You're not quite sure. But you knew you wanted to get go into higher education, or I knew arena? I knew I was going to college. That, oh, there was okay. you know no doubt there. Wasn't sure what I wanted to major in. You just you definitely didn't want to do what your mama was doing. <laughs> no, right? didn't want to do that. You're wrong for that now. <laughs> and you know, you know, just like today, engineering is an intimidated thing, intimidating thing to think about. So you you really wonder, okay, can I do this? And, you know, with really with that experience of kind of sitting there, having somebody say, we're going to test your, your abilities, and then you, you walk away and they come back and say, hey, look how you did. Mm -hmm. So you, you have a level of confidence then that nothing is too much and you can get it done. And that's what happened to you. Mm -hmm. And once you hit that stride, that was it. That was it. It was never no looking back. back. Never, never looked back. Now you was deciding too while you was at Southern University, you was doing what you call them, the intern somewhere? What, what happened? How'd I you did intern. So um, while at Southern, in the engineering program, there are various opportunities to do internships. I actually interned with Motorola Corporation, which in, in the semiconductor environment. Um, went to Phoenix, Arizona, spent some time out there. And it happened when I graduated, it happened to be uh, during the time when the semiconductor industry was going through a big shift. So I ended up not going back to Motorola 
and ended up working for Tennessee Valley Authority in Knoxville, Tennessee. <laughs> so you ended up, when you left Southern University, you went to Tennessee, and Knoxville, I went, Tennessee. I went to Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, what was that experience like? Coming from the deep south, I learned even more about the South when I got to Tennessee. Tennessee is a nice, <laughs> nice, nice state, though. I like Tennessee. It is a nice state, but it was not very open to receiving uh, a young black female being in charge in an environment where you had a lot of white males. Oh, so you, was in, you went there being in charge? I, well, I was an engineer, so I had a lot of people that worked on my projects that were drafters or specialists, so I was leading the project. What type of projects were you doing there? At Tennessee Valley Authority, it was all power because you were actually responsible for doing projects to improve the power facilities, be it a, you know, a, a nuclear power plant or a different power plant. So they were individual projects that were you know, all geared towards power improvements. Now, also, before you left Southern University, now way in there, you had time as an engineer student, a five-year curriculum. You did it, it took five years, right? Mm -hmm. And you ended up pledging? Of course. What time, where you found time to pledge? Well, you know, the, there are certain things that are just part of your being. And even before I got to Southern University, I was a debutante. So I had you know, one, I'm a legacy. So my grandmother uh, was a Delta, my mother was a Delta, and I saw the work that women in Delta Sigma Theta were doing across the country. Um, at a young age, I knew who Barbara Jordan was. I knew who Shirley Chisholm was. I understood the impact they were having on the world and the doors that they were opening. So having an opportunity to be a part of an organization like that and to carry that legacy was something that I was gonna fit into my journey. You sound like you're the president of the Delta City. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, I'm not. Are you, are you working on that? <laughs> no, I'm not working on <laughs> that. That's a good speech. <laughs> not working Delta's. on that. But, you did a great job. But the, there's a legacy there uh, and a story that's being told but anywhere that you go in the world, you will see the women of Delta Sigma Theta in leadership roles and making a difference. Now, now ladies, look, I, I, I don't favor the Deltas. Just don't happen that she, <laughs> <laughs> young lady, it's a Delta. We, we, we give honor to the AK. And so do we. And so do we. But so. <laughs> And so do we. So this, so this, so it's, so this is not a Delta-only program. Though, so we go, no, and so that, do we. I have a lot of respect for all of them, but okay. I have love for Delta. Yeah, all right. We good. We good. Now, you in, in, ended up in the area of, of the great, what, what her name was, Bessie Coleman? Mm-hmm. Now, tell, tell everybody who was Bessie Coleman. Bessie Coleman was the first black female pilot to actually get a pilot's license. And, you know, I, we, in our office, we had a, a room that was named for Bessie Coleman. So okay. she is entrenched in the history of this country and aviation forever. Okay, now how you end up in aviation? 
How did I end up in aviation? Well, I ended up in Washington, D.C. So oh, I from, told from you. From Tennessee? I, from Tennessee. I told you I started at Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, and believe it or not, TVA was going through some changes and they were moving our office from Knoxville to Chattanooga. And as I said, you know, when I got to TC, uh, Tennessee, I learned a lot more about the South than I knew uh, from my experiences in Louisiana. Did you go to the Grand Ole Opera? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> I went there with a good experience. But I, I decided that I didn't want to live in Tennessee anymore. After how long? Well, once they were going to move our operation, I'd been there almost two years. And I wasn't going to move from Knoxville to Chattanooga. If I was going to move, I was going to make a big move. Uh, and, of course, you know, at that time, um, you know, we were moving uh, kind of collectively as graduates of Southern University for, to either Dallas, Atlanta, or D.C. And my first opportunity came up in D.C. So I packed up everything, moved to, to the nation's capital, and started working as a engineer for a small black-owned engineering firm. In D.C.? In D.C. What was the name of that firm? Uh, Advanced Engineering was the name of the firm. They still around? I don't think they're still around, mm -hmm. no. A lot of the small companies in D.C., their goal is to build and sell. Uh, and I think he eventually sold the company. So I ended up in Washington, D.C., and uh, kind of interesting story. I tell a lot of the people that I mentor this story. I was working for this small firm, and towards the end of the fiscal year, which is September, there's chatter in the office and people saying, oh, we may not have a job in October. Uh, the contract may not be extended. And, you know, we, when are they going to tell us whether or not we have a contract? I said, so I started asking some questions. I said, okay, tell me a little bit more about this. Because, <laughs> you know, it's my experience. Everybody in my family, you know, were in jobs where they just, you know, kind of kept those jobs forever. Uh, so that's when I started to learn about government contracting. And this company had a government contract that was coming to an end. So they had to get a new contract in order for them to keep us on as employees. So I decided then I wanted to work for the people that were giving out the money. <laughs> you want to be on the other side, huh? Yeah, I want to be on the other side. So, so that, you know, kind of gave me an opportunity to learn more about the federal government, the opportunities in the federal government, and I started to pursue jobs in the federal government. So that's how I ended up in aviation. Now, engineer, people say I'd rather be in, I'd rather be in the front of the line serving the food than be in the back <laughs> of the line hoping they don't run out of food. <laughs> that's kind of that's where that goes, right? Uh -huh. So you want to be on the other side. You want to I be. I want to be. You want to be. You had to come to you. Want to understand the money, but remember now, I started in Louisiana, and it, Louisiana is a lot of things. But the one thing you learn coming out of Louisiana is politics. You know, kind of embedded in that is how important it is to understand the flow of money. Being a, a contractor, you're on the back end of how this whole money flows. You know, I mean, you're in the nation's capital. The money starts with the federal government. Once you learn that, 
then you figure out how things happen and how you can make a difference and how to make and how to position happen. yourself from yeah. that. Were you able to help other people to best position themselves to catch the be in the flow of that? I would say yes. You know, so my you know, I ended up in aviation. I started out uh, in what we call the Office of Airports as an engineer. My job at that time was to write standards for all of the equipment that is on the airport side of the, the, what we call the threshold. So if a plane is, is landing, there's a threshold, it crosses in the air, and then it's on the airport. Everything that the airport owned and operated, there were three engineers in the country, and I was one of them. We wrote the standards for all of that equipment. Wrote the standards? Mm-hmm. You, you, you still was writing the standards? Uh, writing standards, yes. And, and the, the way uh, the system worked is the airports would purchase the equipment, but all of the equipment had to meet the federal standards. Now what, give, me some, give us my idea. What type of equipment are we talking about? You ever notice the blue lights on the taxiway? <laughs> okay. The white lights on the runway? Uh, yeah. They're uh, equipment called PAPIs, which helps the planes identify the right slope. So all of that equipment that is visibly visual aids to a pilot when he's approaching the airport was equipment. So that that red, that white, blue lights have a purpose, specific purpose. So let's talk about that a little bit because, you know, one of the things we, we have to help kind of the people behind us understand. Uh, You've heard the words over and over, you know, no man is an island, no woman is an island. Um, moving into an environment like aviation, where I had zero aviation experience. I was an engineer. I knew electrical engineering. I knew nothing about aviation. The only way I was going to learn enough about aviation to be respected was to build relationships and listen. There are people that I work with for 20 or 30 years that don't know that I've never been an air traffic controller because I learned that much from the people around me. So you're not an air traffic controller? Never been an air traffic controller. But you know exactly what they do. But but I was responsible for developing the equipment that air traffic controllers use. So you had to learn what they do. Had to learn what they do. Same thing for pilots. So, you know, part of my responsibility was developing tools that, you know, would go into the aircraft. I've never been a pilot, but I had to understand how they do their job. Okay, now you, this is a technical aspect of it too, or just more of the physical, like the lights, uh, so the, like that? So let's talk <clears throat> technical. So when we talk about technical, in my last job with the Federal Aviation Administration, I was responsible for all of the research and new product development for aviation. For aviation as a whole. For aviation as a whole. As it relates to the federal government. As it relates to air travel. Air travel, okay. Okay, because the federal government doesn't own the airplanes, so the airlines own the airplanes. Um, So my job was really to determine, if you think about flipping the switch from analog to digital, Aviation was behind. 
because it is a huge, massive infrastructure of equipment that is all over the United States of America. So over the last 15 years, we had to go from an analog system to a digital system. Now, what does that mean? Uh, we had radars. Radars, basically, uh, you've seen them on top of you know, a control tower. They basically sweep and they identify metal as they spin around. But there's a gap in information as it, it sweeps. So to transition to that, to a real-time data infrastructure, we had to put in a GPS infrastructure. So similar to the GPS you have on your phone that can you know, see you and, and alert people where your location which is. Was, which was, was created by uh, one of us, by a young lady who created this GPS. Yes. I don't remember the name, but what's her name? I don't remember. A, a woman of African descent, mm -hmm. the one who created the GPS. Yeah. So we had to move that technology into aviation. That meant that aircraft had to have specific equipment on it to do a broadcast so that that information was available. So, so we were talking about the technical. Uh, so a huge part of aviation is really understanding the systems, how they work together, and how the humans interface with those systems to make sure that air travel remains safe. Now, and you saying that the, the most remarkable part about this, what you said, is that first of all, you had no level of training or anything when it came to this. I had to do a lot of studying and researching, but I was also leading an organization with over 900 people. Oh, you was so leading I had the to learn what how What organization to, was that? That was it, the office. It was the office of NextGen, which is the next generation air transportation system. So my office was responsible for all of the research, all of the new concepts, all of the new product development that would really dictate what was going on the aircraft, what was going in the air traffic control tower, what equipment was going to be in this new digital environment to keep aviation safe. And you are one of the ones responsible for where the aviation where the aviation is to this day in time in the United States and the world? Yes, sir. Yes, Ms. Pamela, Pamela Ms. Whitney Pamela from Whitney. Baton Rouge, yes, Louisiana, yes. a yes. Southern Jaguar. Yes, I've, I've, I've traveled. Um, I've led research teams. Now, I had some brilliant people that worked for me of all descents, okay? Women, men, people from America, people that weren't from America. So my, my job was really leading the orchestra. Because at any given time, it was 80, 90 different projects going on. 80 to 90. 80 to 90 projects. And in a lot of cases, those projects required that somebody other than the federal government did something. So, for example, I talked about the GPS for the aircraft. In order for that to work, the airlines had to put equipment on the aircraft. I had to also work with the airlines 
to convince them to spend the money that we needed them to spend to do that. Now, Ms. Whitley, so we was also discussing the data flow, data flow. Where we were taking the aviation infrastructure from analog to digital. All right. Now, so this is part of the new aviation, more upgraded to digital data. Yes. And did you have to also testify before the House Committee, U.S. House Committee, regarding this matter? Yes. So uh, NextGen was a billion-dollar-a-year investment. So you can imagine Congress uh, watched us very closely to make sure that we were doing the work that we were tasked okay, to do. On. You say a billion dollars a year. A billion dollars a year. How many years it took to get it to where is it? Uh, it took about 15 years, you know, it's a, it's a continuous investment, you know, when you talk about anything digital and infrastructure, uh, it's a continuous investment. But the big launch uh, was really to transition uh, the core principles of aviation, which I refer to as communication, navigation, and surveillance. So we had to transform the infrastructure that we used to communicate between air traffic control and the pilot. Uh, we transformed the navigation infrastructure, which are a, a suite of tools that pilots use to understand where they are and how to navigate in the air. And then the surveillance infrastructure uh, if you remember, I talked about a radar versus GPS. So the GPS system gave us real-time surveillance information, and that set the stage for a digital infrastructure for aviation. And you call that the CNS? Yes. Some people do refer to it as CNS. <laughs> okay. So the CNS, let's go back to a billion-dollar-a-year investment for the federal government. So you oversaw a billion-dollar-a-year budget? Yes, yes, sir. That was directly under you? Yes. A actually, a, a, in some years, it was $2 billion because that was the specific next-gen investment. But I was also responsible for all of the research efforts for everything else, uh, including, you know, example would be fire. Or, you know, we did research work on unmanned aircraft systems, or people commonly call them drones now. So in, at any given time, I had a billion dollars specifically dedicated to NextGen and another billion dollars for other research. Now, now, what did drones have to do with your line of work? Well, my line of work was anything new in the, avi in, in the aviation ecosystem. So drones have to share airspace or they wanted to share airspace i won't say they have to share airspace because there are laws about um you know where aircraft are who can fly in the airspace and you have to remember the federal government's role is to ensure safety of the public so as drones are you know evolving because there, a lot of it is because of innovation that's happening outside of the government Government had to kind of become a partner with industry to really make sure that there was no impact or degradation to human safety. Now, drones flying even higher than aircraft at this time. Uh, 
I mean, you can't get to the military aspect yeah, of it. Yeah, we don't want to talk about any military <laughs> secrets. But that's part but, of the whole, your, but, your job was part of the military too then. Well, but what I will say is we had concepts which we call upper E. And, and I don't want to get into too many kind of FAA terms, but it's the higher altitude. And in some parts of the world, they are using balloons to maybe provide a you know cable or satellite service so there are vehicles that around the world are flying uh, over aircraft but the idea is to have good regulatory standards worldwide for who can fly in what areas of the airspace my mind is just going somewhere else now, so. <laughs> well and, and and what i'll share is you know, the FAA and, and the United States of America, in a lot of ways, do the bulk of the research for the world. While we did a lot of research, there's an organization called ICAO, which is the International Civil Aviation Organization. Most of our research results are shared through ICAO with the rest of the world. Now, I guess I, my mind is kind of locked in on something here. Now, do you also consider the satellites part of aviation? Aviation? Yes, there are satellites that have aviation function. Okay, what those satellites do in particular? So um, we have a system called ADSB, and there is. What, what do ADSB stands for? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> Advanced Digital Broadcast System, uh, but it's the GPS system. So the satellites are a key component in determining location of, air, of aircraft, in, in our case. Um, no different than the GPS that you have on your Apple phone. If you put on Find Me, there's a satellite that's identifying where that phone is. So same thing with the aircraft, and I was mentioning earlier, in order for it to work, the airlines had to put specific equipment on the aircraft because the aircraft has to broadcast its position to then be received by that equipment, uh, which we can then take and create a picture for the air traffic controller. So it gives us real-time uh, position information on air, all the aircraft in the system. But you are not an air aircraft controller. No, you never worked I've, as an aircraft. Controller. I've never worn a headset. I've but never specifically you're an engineer. I'm an engineer. An electrical engineer. Electrical engineer. That happened to end up in the world of aviation for the at its highest level. Yes, yes, sir. And you had a lot going on because I just heard you had lost your father. Correct. At the same time, you making you testifying for the for the committee about how y'all spending their money. That's right. That's right. And and I respect the fact that Congress has a right to know uh, how we spend their money. It's always a uh, interesting experience to have to sit before members of Congress. I've done it many times. We typically have you know meetings with them. Uh, their staff on a regular basis and usually sit in front of the members at least once a year. But in that particular case, we were getting to kind of the end of big investments. You know, we talked about calm, nav, and surveillance. So we were kind of in the acquisition state for the last big acquisition. So Congress wanted to hear the story. So what have we done? 
Um, did it work? The, I think, takeaway from that experience was we talked a little bit about the airline role and having to put equipment on the aircraft. Well, we've watched the airlines and how they behave in economic conditions. They don't want to spend money. <laughs> so we had to convince them that it was a wise investment that would return value for them for them to put the equipment on the aircraft. And in the hearing that you're talking about, they actually called it a round table. In the round table that you talked about, um, the head of air traffic spoke. Um, Terry Bristol was her name. I spoke as the head of NextGen, and we also had uh, the head of our NextGen Advisory Committee represent the airline industry, so we all came together to speak to Congress in one voice. And Congressman Grady gave you a shout-out in Louisiana, Florida. He did. He, he did. I was very uh, pleased. I've uh, had the pleasure of being in his company more than once. His staff was always very supportive. Uh, but I've learned that he, he's very proud of Southern University and the work that, that we've been able to do in the community as graduates of Southern University. Shout out to Brother Grady. <laughs> now, you also referred to the, the, the world of aviation. So what did you mean by, not aviation, sur surveillance? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you use the term surveillance. Mm -hmm. Now, what did that have to do with aviation? Well, surveillance in aviation is the ability to identify the position of an aircraft. So uh, a little kind of aviation 101. The role is always safety, safety first. Aircraft in an operation, you remember the, the movie, I'm dating myself now, uh, was called The Boy in the Bubble. No, and it was, uh, uh, I can't remember the illness, but it was actually, I think John Travolta played the role and he had, you know, he was very susceptible to infections. So they created a bubble for him to live in. That was a movie, I don't know if it ever happened in real life. But I use that to say that the aircraft is treated like uh, the boy in the bubble and we protect the aircraft with separation standards. So nothing can, be, can get you know, close to an aircraft in any direction. So the surveillance information is critical in knowing the exact location because now I can more efficiently manage the aircraft. Right. I'm not guessing about where the aircraft is, I have precise information. When you use those type of terms, like surveillance surveillance you know the, i always figure the government's surveilling us too <laughs> hey i didn't work in that part of the government <laughs> so i didn't work in that part so, of the you government. know I, i'm listening I'm, <laughs> I, like i said I, I hear you but i'm kind of like surveillance i mean okay it's good they surveilling the planes but also the people too from from an faa standpoint the the number one goal is always safety and you know what a lot of citizens don't understand is the, the FAA's role is safety of American citizens, whether they're flying on a U.S. aircraft or not, whether they're flying in the continental U.S. 
or not. So that's why we play such a critical role in international research and international standards um, because we want to make sure that no matter where Americans board an airplane, they're safe. All this part of your job. Yes. And how long you did this job? I worked for the FAA for 30 years and I led the Next Gen organization. I was the deputy uh, for several years and then I became the administrator, but in totality I was in the organization 15 years. Where your office located? My office was on uh, Independence Avenue. Now, you were so good at what you did that they named a what after you? <laughs> what wow. you call this? You, so, so you want me to show you what it was? Uh, uh, nobody gonna be able to see it, but I'll be. Mean, you got like so, you got so one, it's called a fix, okay? And that's very uh, you know aviation specific in terms of the term. But aircraft fly point to point, so even though you can't see them, there are points in the sky that are significant to how an aircraft moves. Just like a highway. Just like a highway. Okay. So if you think of a red light uh, and you, somebody tells you to go to College Drive, turn right on Perkins Road, then that light is an indication of where you turn. So same concept, they're just highways in the sky, but there are no lights for people to see. All right. So those points have names and they are XYZ coordinates that are programmed into the airplane computer system. So instead of us, you know, saying go to College Drive, turn right at the light, the what the controller will say is you're on this route and you go to point X and you vector in whatever direction. So those points have names or indicators, letter indicators. And one of the highest honors in the FAA is for them to take a point and rename it with your name. So when I retired, they took the point, which is on the final approach to runway 22 right at the Baton Rouge Airport and renamed it Whitley. Just Whitley, not Pam Whitley? No, it's, it's, five, it's five letters. So you only get five yes. letters. So it's only five letters. And what happens is that then becomes an official aircraft waypoint that is programmed in a computer and it becomes a part of the aeronautical maps that pilots use to navigate. So, so the okay. last point where a pilot has to cross to know that he's lined up with runway 22 right in Baton Rouge is named Whitley. I like that, dude. So you got a runway <laughs> name after you. A waypoint, not a runway. A waypoint. You're going to call it a runway. <laughs> you got to get there first. Then, huh? So that is named after Pamela Whitley. Yes. That is an honor. So how did you feel about it? You was expecting that? or you? Um, you know, it's... I wasn't necessarily expecting it. You know, it's quite an honor, it, but it's just symbolic of the contribution and the, you know, permanent contributions that people make to aviation. So I was just honored to be recognized with so many people that have done that. Okay, so now 
only thing I don't like is 22. So, because sometimes when you hit 22, you're going to catch 22. <laughs> so, well, uh, well, well, that's another lesson. Yeah, so, run, runways so, are numbered based on the coordinates. Now, which direction will you be coming from if you're going to get to the Whitley 20, uh, runway 22? 22, right. Uh, I think it lines up over Plank Road. Okay. So if you're landing on the runway when you right before you get to Plank Road, uh, I haven't been there to see it. The yeah, airport going, director uh, uh, said he was going to take me over so we could take a picture over there. Oh, okay, we need to be there. <laughs> <laughs> have count time and smart brother. We need to be a part of this. What opportunities are for other young men and women coming out of college to work in the area of aviation? What opportunities are there? Um, so the first thing I would say is even though I was an engineer, uh, the air traffic control career is golden. The work that they do is, you know, critical to aviation safety, critical to moving people. I used to always say our job is connecting people with places. You know, it is a, you know, profession of high honor. Unfortunately, there are not many African Americans in that profession. In, um, in, in aviation. In air traffic control. Air traffic control, yeah. And, well, well aviation, period, yeah. but air traffic uh, control specifically. Over the last 10 years, the agency has, you know, tried very aggressively to attract minorities into the air traffic field. Don't want to kind of give you a long story, but one of the things that they've been able to do is to move to an open application. Uh, it used to be such that you had to go to a air traffic control school or be, have air traffic control experience from the military in order to apply. They went to an open application to bring in more minorities and if you meet the initial um, you know, competency tests that they put out, then you then qualify to be trained to be an air traffic controller. Many air traffic controllers with, without a college degree are able to make over six figures. And a lot of our youth don't know that. And it would be good to just have them explore that as a career opportunity. Now, I heard now, only one thing, one bad thing I heard about air, tra air traffic controller that is a very stressful job. Life is stressful. Well, that's true. What, what I will say is that uh, it is a profession. And what I mean by that is there's not anything left to chance. Uh, you're trained before you start the job. You're trained throughout your career. Training is a part of their you know, regular weekly schedule. So it's not set up such that you know, anybody would be put in a position to do that job with that responsibility without the support that they need to get it done. So you're saying there are a lot of opportunities for young people coming out of Southern, the HBCUs, to get a great job, great future, great paying job, with great benefits, with working with the federal government. Yes, and, and you know, air traffic control is just one. Now, like, I was an, an engineer, uh, but you can look at you know, everything is digital now. So just like you have apps on your phone, they are moving to applications that support aviation. Uh, an example would be, we recently demonstrated a technology 
uh, where typically a private pilot would have to, you know, kind of go through phone calls or, you know, kind of uh, personal contact to plan when they're going to leave the airport. So when is there space available? When can I get a departure time? And we have moved that to a digital environment. So now they can look at their iPad and see, hey, there's space available at, you know, between 2 and 2.45 this afternoon. And they can plan their flight uh, using something like an iPad. But in order for things like that to happen, we have to have brilliant minds, engineers, computer scientists, data managers, so the opportunities are there, not just for people that fly airplanes or people that do air traffic control, but really all of the STEM careers are part of the future of aviation. Oh, the STEM career. Now, what, what is a STEM career? Science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And those opportunities have really opened up. Mm -hmm. For all, mm -hmm. really. So, and, and you say, and it's, it's they're easy. They're making to tap into it now. How do you get? Besides, you say that uh, air tra air traffic controller. How else can they find out what's what's available in that arena? Well, th so a lot of information is available, um, you know, on the web. There are intern programs for you know, students that are in school. So uh, those are all advertised on usajobs.gov. Did you use a lot of interns? At, I did. Okay. Yes, I did. And, you know, so those opportunities are available for people to learn about. Now, you're a young woman who have retired at a, at a quite early age. And you ain't gonna just sit around. You done, you, you don't you done, so. done some, because you, you've done great things, you've got greater things to do. And you can impact so many more people in, in being a part of the, the local Baton Rouge community. So what are some things that you, that you might be looking into, getting into or doing? Or, or I can make some suggestions. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I get suggestions almost daily. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, people ask me when I got really retired. First of all, they didn't believe that I was going to retire. It's like, you know, I was a fixture around the place. And they said, well, yeah, you're too young to retire. I said, what, so what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to live in my purpose. And now I'm on the journey to figure out what that means. You got to find out what figure that means. out what it means. But I do know that um, my experiences can be a lesson for many. Women, African-American women, men, you know, in the job, I was one of few African-Americans at that level in the agency. So you can imagine I was the mentor for all. I was the example for all. <laughs> now, so when you walked in the room in D Washington, D.C., or represent Washington, uh, your company, what's the name of the company you work for? Federal Aviation Administration. Federal Aviation. When you walked, when you traveled... How many people in the room look like you at most meetings? Or Not many. We would like to say, well, give me a percentage. If there was, two, if there was 20 people in two, the room, two. how many? Uh, 20, 20, 20. If it's 20 people in the room, is one. <laughs> that was you. That was me. That's it. So you, you had to represent your, your community. That's it. That's it. 
you did an awesome job of doing that. And I feel honored to even be here to interview you to, uh, to capture this story. But we got to figure out but, what to But, but let's, let's talk about that for a minute because I've, I've had the opportunity to mentor many people. And I try to help them understand how important that is. So if you are the person in the room, you become the example of how people see everyone that looks like you. And you should never, ever take that lightly. And I, I'll, I won't tell names because I, I don't want to kind of, you know, tattletale. But I sat down and told a young man who had done something that he should not have done. And I was punishing him for it. Using the, the system that we had in place in HR. African-American young man who had a degree in electrical engineering and a degree in mathematics. And I said to him, I'm going to give you the most stringent punishment that this system will allow me to give you. And the lesson you take away from this today is that you have not earned the right to destroy an opportunity for somebody coming behind me. Oh, that's powerful. I never had any more problems out of it. Set them on the right course. But, you know, the, the, we can't take lightly that we have that opportunity. Now, you know, we, we talked, we joked about uh, Congressman Graves uh, giving me an introduction. But if I wasn't getting my job done, he wouldn't have put his name on the line in front of mine. Right. <laughs> okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, and just and to see how <laughs> eager he was to speak before you spoke. I, right. that, that was the beauty of that. He was excited about it. Right. And, and you, you, know, I mean, you think of something as dynamic as transforming the you know, national aviation infrastructure. And you could see his pride in saying, hey, this is led by somebody from my state. And the, the thing I try to help people just kind of bear a little, uh, I'd say, patience for is not always using the race word. Now, it's clear to him that I'm an African-American woman, but on that day, he was proud that I was from the state of Louisiana. And we have to really help our people understand that when you're at the table, you're at the table representing people that don't even know that opportunity exists. You can't take it away from them. Oh, you're serious about that. Yeah. Like <laughs> you're serious about that. I, I mean, yeah, yeah, be, because we've all seen the impact that it has when people don't give us an opportunity because of the way we look. Don't feed into it. And, and I've, I tell people all the time, you know, I've had people sit in my office and say, oh, this happened and it's just not fair and this person didn't have to do this, you know, and I have to do more. I say, stop. Newsflash, life is not fair. If that's what you're chasing, then you're going to never find it. The only thing you can do is be responsible for the person you bring to the table and the product you leave behind. A lot of wisdom. 
in time. When, <laughs> when I when I see that picture and the people that was that showed us that you stand now, mm -hmm. I see why the insight. Now let's get back to this data flow. <laughs> <laughs> data flow. Okay. What, what in the world is data flow? You got a whole article on data flow. Would you wrote the article? I wrote the article. Yes. Oh, okay. Then, now, what, what what is data flow? So, in terms of aviation, of course, we talked about the move to digital, but it's just like on your iPhone. The more instant and real-time information is, the more we're attracted to it, the more we can do with it, the more doors it opens up. I mean, do you remember the day when you had to go to the bank to see how much money you had in the bank? Nobody does that anymore. You know, I can remember my grandfather going to the bank because he had to go talk to the banker to see, you know, what was there and what he could do. Well, now we have that on our phone. Same thing with aviation. Things that we needed to have notebooks for or things that we needed to have a long conversation about, things that we needed to plan for. We're looking to make as many things as possible real time and that's data and information so a good example is if in our in aviation we talked about calm nav and surveillance but the other key component is weather because weather can change the whole plan so if i can now integrate real-time weather information and a weather forecast for where the aircraft is going to be at a specific time, I can make real-time informations that are most efficient for the system. So now you 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 the weather weather woman too. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not the weather woman, but weather data is critical to aviation. So you have to understand all these yeah. dynamics yeah. when you're sitting there organizing yeah. this. Because guess what? As a, a traveler. You don't want to take off in a storm. Yeah, true. You don't want to take off and the you know the, the plane ends up in a lightning storm that we didn't know existed. So that information, be it real time or predictive, is critical. But guess what? It's not like I'm sitting at my house in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I want to know what the weather's going to be in three hours. This airplane is moving. It's on a path. So I have to take this digital information and understand where's this plane going to be, what circumstances are around this plane, what weather could impact it, because I can make a different decision. I could send it on a different path. I could, you know, have that aircraft take off later. I could have it take off earlier. I could, I could give the airline an option to shift planes around, move, move this plane first because this one needs to wait because of the weather. But all of that is a result of having data that you can put into some analytical infrastructure to make decisions. That's a whole lot going on. <laughs> so you, came, you became an expert in quite a, few, quite a few other fields there. Yeah, I did, I did. Because you had to learn everything that was going on that affect the aircraft. And that's, that's almost everything you can think of. Yes. Yeah. But uh, but the sun is never too hot for the airplane, though. Uh, if you close the shade, you'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> so you wrote the article on data flow, 
that was something that they, someone asked you to write with for aviation, or that's something you done on, decided on your own? Um, as part of the job, we would you know do publications from time to time, and at that time we were the article was in the Air Traffic Control Association Journal. So part of my job was to help the industry understand where government is going. And we use different tools to that, do that, and a lot of times we write articles to do now, that. the government do not own the airplanes. Mm -mm. It, it, but it owned the runway, and it owned the, the, the state, the state owned the building. The government doesn't own the runway. Most of the airports are owned by local municipalities. Yes, the federal well, government doesn't own it. They don't own it, but they they are, but they write the standards they that they the have to, that governs it from that. But they hire the air, air traffic controllers. Yes. So they they hire the man because you can't you can't not move at the airport if the air traffic controllers don't show up for work. That's it. Nothing. <laughs> so they do have a big. That's interesting. There. So the the municipalities or government locomotives own the actual airport. Mm -hmm. Other companies own the, the companies, mm -hmm. the, uh, Delta, mm -hmm. but the federal government only own the laws and rules that, that are used to govern it like this. Now, what's, now, let's get to this here. Now, this is something that been bothering me for quite some time. Uh oh! I right. want you to be bothered. No, don't be. Don't let me be bothered. That's, uh, that, 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 that messed the old man up. That is that, and they changed it on several in, in the last several years. When from it's supposed to be in 2018, 2021, 2022, now 2023, that everybody gonna have to have a real ID to fly mm -hmm. or to enter, enter any federal buildings or anything to do with the federal government. What you do about this? Not much, but I have my real ID. <laughs> <laughs> you you, well, you've been having yours, didn't you? Yeah, I have mine. So you, what is the real ID then? Mine is a driver's license. But you, you had to provide certain information, and it has, you know, a, a watermark or something on it. Uh, but I think it's really, you know, kind of an opportunity to make sure all of the documentation that people have on file to say who they are uh, is really valid. Yeah, so the government now would be controlling all the states. So now, the, right now, you go to each state and get your get a driver license. But the, the real ID is going to be a federal ID. Now, my real ID is a driver's license. It's going to be a driver's license, mm -hmm. but now the federal government has control over because they are the one who moving you towards that. That you got to have a, it's going to end up being a federal ID. Okay. You know, that's why they say real ID. Now we just, you know, regular drive license, we should do, right? <laughs> but it's not a, just a regular drive license. Well, you it was know, a real some people ID. try to live off the grid, so they, <laughs> <laughs> they got to make sure everybody's on the yeah, grid. Yeah, they got to make sure everybody's <laughs> on the grid. So, but most people are not familiar with the real ID and how this going to have an impact. <clears throat> and it will change it on several occasions. From the you, from the highway to all transportation, you're gonna to have to have a real ID to travel anywhere. And I guess my question is why you know why you need a, a federal ID to travel from one state to another? Because something's about to happen. You know, it's something about to go down. 
And we can kind of clearly see it because it happened already. It happened during COVID when each state shut down. Mm-hmm. When certain states shut down, you could not enter into that state. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what's getting ready to happen. And without a real ID, without the ID, you're gonna, you're gonna, you, they'll be able to turn you around. You can't come here. And I mean, to me, it's already here. It's yeah. already, I saw it happen. I, I read about it about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I saw it was going to happen. But I didn't know it was going to happen now. But I, when I saw the, some states shut down and wouldn't allow you in, it was already here. Mm-hmm. That's what they told me. It's already here now. And well, without that, it brought a lot of things out, right? Well, yeah, it exposed a lot. But what it exposed what's really getting ready to happen in this country. And that's why when you say surveillance, that grabbed my attention. Mm-hmm. Because those kind of, when I hear those kind of, those words trigger something in my mind. I don't know what it is, but you kind of like that yourself, right? Yeah, well, aviation <laughs> is, you know, we use words that don't mean what the military means when they use them. So. So, well, I don't know. <laughs> How do you separate the two? The government is the military. Yeah. Well, yeah. I said aviation. You said the but, government. Uh, but, you know, who controls aviation? The government, the military. <laughs> so, but, you know, that's part of what, I, what count time is about. Mm-hmm. You know, what we say with awakening those who are civilly dead oh, okay. by awakening the mind. Well, being civilly dead, they don't know what the rule, what the laws that govern them. So they see, you think you know, but you really don't know. Okay. And like, you know, you did a great job of informing the people and the audience about the world of aviation on a whole nother level that, I mean, like I said, very few of us are privileged to sit in here and even be at the table so we here and we was able to get true insights on what's going on what's happening and also opportunities for so many young men and women in the world of aviation and with the federal government they choose to go in there mm-hmm. but can some of them just contact you you can hook them up <laughs> hey, I, I can coach them you can coach them <laughs> so maybe we need to talk to the mayor uh and get her to Set up some kind of organization that can help train the young the young men and women here, and get them ready for the next voyage in aviation. Avi- Avi- but they, they just opened up a aviation school. Sure um, did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You yeah. was a part of that? No, I wasn't a part of that. Now, wh- they what? opened before I moved back. No, we already talked about the you know the the, the Pam. You showed me a picture with your name on it. What that picture was about? The Pam Whitley. This one? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that picture was actually a um, retirement uh, gift given to me by NASA. NASA? A lot of the research... Um, work that we did at the FAA was done in partnership with NASA. Uh, and in this case, we were um, working on a product which is the uh, advanced uh, terminal data system, uh, which is really how we would take data in the airport environment um, to uh, provide a new system for air traffic. So in that case, NASA was transitioning to me the research that they had done so it could move and advance into an FAA system. And so you helped NASA out? 
Oh, yeah, we helped each other. Yeah, help each other. Yeah, we help each other. The, yeah. the way it's set up is uh, if something is you know, long-term, probably 15 years or more away from happening, NASA does the kind of pure research. And then the FAA would take it and advance it in more of an implied research concept uh, to move it forward. Now, NASA focuses space. NASA focuses space, but they also have a responsibility in uh, air traffic, uh, even it, through their legislation. But through their legislation, they do the pure research for air traffic. Well, you, when you think about it, now, I guess in our mind, we we conceptualizing space as somewhere way out and deep. But space is everywhere yeah. <laughs> that you move it and travel it. Right. There's right. space, so NASA covers all of this. Yeah. Okay, okay. But you have you have to work you had to work with NASA on a regular basis. Yes. Yes. So they're taking some of y'all information and y'all using y'all y'all yeah. exchanging information and data. Right, and and they you know some of the research work they would turn the products over to us for future development. You know, for a new system in air traffic, it typically takes. 10 plus years to get it you know in front of an air traffic controller so we're working across that period of time to develop it do the human factors work understand the data uh, go through an acquisition process to have a permanent vendor build it uh, so throughout that you know 10 plus years we're working with many partners and NASA is, is usually one of them so you actually taken Aviation, as as we as we see where it's going now, you have brought it out of darkness because y'all it was like in the in the what do you call them, them stages analog not analog what do you call that but like the days of old or back in the like what that is again dark age so you you so that's you had a huge impact so probably I guess the next twenty thirty years are gonna be working towards another aspect of it. What would the next thing be? Well, it's interesting that you say that because that was my last product um, that I, I finished before I left, which was the next 20 years. Okay. Uh, and that is really, you know, that's why I wrote the article on big data, data and information. Uh, it's really now that you have all of this calm nav surveillance weather data how do we make the system more efficient how do we um you know manage the drone so give you an example um the drones will never be managed by an air traffic controller never never that's not what they do they move Air, airplanes. So that's, that's NASA, they, they that. could care less about Pizza Hut delivering a pizza in my backyard on a drone. So how do you ensure that safety? We created a uh, what we call the unmanned air traffic management system where a individual provider could say, hey, I want to be the control function for drones. And, you know, I'm not sure how they'll end up doing it, but, you know, I build my infrastructure 
And as that company, I'm the one communicating with air traffic just to get my assignment of what airspace I have control over. But I'm not going to have to deal with them for each and every drone. And then um, as that provider, I can now manage all the drones that I have a, a responsibility for. Oh, hold on, hold on. Let's go, let's, let's go back to this now because we, we know drones are the future for delivery delivery and ways of moving I'm not products. Convinced, but I'm not convinced, but okay. That, that's, me. That's, what they, that's what they're saying, right? For, uh, Amazon is one of the key mm -hmm. partners in moving mm -hmm. the, drone, the drone industry to the, to the next level. Mm -hmm. Now, how did you see that? Now, I understand you say that, that y'all was able to cut out, or not cut out, what do you call that? Bring, but how do you do? How you say that term? Where you got use the space? We allocate airspace. Al allocate eight airspace right. that can be used strictly for drone. Mm -hmm. They only can fly so high. Yeah, they only can they and only, so, far. So, so far. Basically, you give them a cube. And you and you had a hand in putting this in place mm -hmm. in the whole U.S. of A. and and and, and, and abroad or where? Well, the U.S. has its own standards. It, uh, unfortunately, we don't have a, a global standard yet. They're still working on that. But we did the test to figure out how to make it work. Because the idea is, you know, airspace is cut into sectors. So um, no company would have it all. But I would have, you know, a cube to be responsible for. Another company may have the cube next to me. So those companies had to communicate with each other and then air traffic would have to have awareness that they were doing something. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So we, you and I can open up a company where we can mm -hmm. own this air, airspace. Yeah, you wanna open one? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> we own something now. That's, what, that's what's up. <laughs> if we can use this we can rent out the airspace. You're not renting out the airspace. You are charging people to be a service provider. Service provider. So that they can operate in that airspace in compliance with all the federal laws Maybe and regulations. Not. But it's another business opportunity that we probably wouldn't find out until much later. Mm -hmm. By the time most of us find out, it's, mm -hmm. it's already you know, been locked down, like they say. Mm -hmm. So those, those, there is a, that's another business opportunity. That's what you're sharing right now. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that we, our listening audience, is aware of what you're really saying. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and now you are questioning in, in your mind that this can actually be a viable business? Well, I'm, I'm not questioning whether or not it can be a business. I'm not sure how... Um, how much of the delivery business this will take over. You know, so I get packages, but there's a weight limit. So they're not going to deliver me, uh, you know, they can deliver a pizza, they can deliver, you know, a six-pack of Coke, they can, you know, deliver something that doesn't weigh a lot. But when you get into bigger packages, you know, some of the things that I order when I'm watching QVC, they can't deliver that. <laughs> You, you already know what the weight limits are. Yeah. So you, 
You know that you know that that's gotta come by by truck or some other way. Yeah. yeah. Now you're saying this could be a viable business for only certain type of businesses. Well, and and there, you know, the different concepts that are being evaluated. Um, you know, so there's some uh, medical facilities that are looking at it to transport things that need to be transported quickly. Um, you know, everybody's kind of seen the concept of delivering a pizza. Um, you know, you can find that industries like the real estate industry will use it to do inspections. Uh, police departments have uses where they could use drones where they would want to, you know, put somebody in jeopardy. So there are many applications that are being explored uh, and the rules are being built. But, you know, do I think it'll kind of put the trucks out of business from a delivery standpoint? Probably not. Because you only can move so much, because you only got carry so much weight. That's, right. So it's the yeah. weight that the, the yeah. weight is the issue. Yeah. In this line of work. Yeah. But I guess if they create drones strong enough mm -hmm. though, to handle the weight, that would be the difference. Uh, well, they'd have to be bigger. So not necessarily we, bigger, you know. With technology now, they can they can yeah. make. Create more horsepower, and and so the other thing uh, to take into account, one of the big um, kind of areas of public interest around aviation is noise. So um, you know, a lot of people that live close to the airport don't want to hear the airplanes, um, you know, various hours during the day. These drones are noisy. Right. Can you imagine sitting in your house you know, buzzing all over the place and you get somebody getting a pizza? <laughs> you don't want to hear that all day. All that for a pizza, huh? Yeah. So he could withdraw that and got you a pizza. Yeah, exactly. That's like the people coming to cut the grass. Yeah, look, that, and that's going to be all day long. That's, that's like when the lawn man show up with the weed yeah, and all that. Right. That's irritating. And you're just going to hear that all day long in your house. You don't want to hear that. I was watching some shows a while back where they were showing I that. guess I won't be getting a job with a drone company. <laughs> <laughs> I saw where uh, the federal government has drones that are pretty quiet. Mm -hmm, they so I mean, it's going only only before only be a short time before they move into the, the whole industry. We'll see where it goes. We'll see. Because the federal government already have drones that are very quiet that can move undetected, undetected, unheard. We'll see. I mean, but this so you you got a wide range of insight and perspective and knowledge on on aviation. So you that's what. And to hear you explain it, I can see what you like. You really like it. You like controlling things anyway. Like, know where everything going to be, where it's going. I can, <laughs> you just love that. And I tell other folks, too, how to do it. What, what, you know, you was way ahead of your game. I was the leader of the orchestra. Yeah, but you, you're ahead of your game. But guess what? As a people, that's how our mind works. You know, just it moves at a pace, a space, and... That's why we move, dance, you know, mm -hmm. run, jump. That's who we are. And uh, you made, you did it with ease. Well, other people it was so complicated, but you made it, you simplified for them. Well, thank you. But I can see you. I think you're going back in the in the world of uh, of that business. I can see you just. You think so? Because you, you love it. You truly enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> you talking about that like you well, eat the meal. Well, 
like did, 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 it did it for 30 years. And, and, and you know, I think one of the things that um, is intriguing about it is for 30 years, I learned something new every day. That's powerful. Learn something new every day. Um, you know, I, I'll just would, yeah, like I say, anytime 80 to 90 projects, I'd have to say, hey, have this person come in and brief me. You know, how, how are we setting up our cybersecurity infrastructure? You know, why does the newspaper say this and you tell me it's not a problem? <laughs> and to have a scientist sit there and explain to you, well, we're doing this, and then we have a layer that does this, then we have a layer that does this, and, you know, what they said, yeah, there was a, a show, I can't remember which show it was, where they uh, might have been CSI, one of those shows, where they had a guy on the airplane, and they said he could take over the airplane through the surveillance system that we set up. That you set up? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we all knew it wouldn't happen, but the idea is to have people come in and really teach you the details of how that's happening, the layers, the redundancy in the system. So even after 30 years, I was learning something new about aviation almost every day of the week. Now you had to work with other countries too. I work with other countries. And one of your favorite countries was Russia? Oh uh, no, 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 I didn't work with them. <laughs> Didn't work with them. <laughs> well, United States worked with Russia, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they worked with them. The space station. We did a lot of work with Europe, a um, lot of work with the Asian countries. We actually had, I had an international office in my organization that, you know, would put together uh, a five-year international strategy. What specific countries we wanted to work with. You know, we were aware of the work that they were doing. We were aware of the research that we wanted to uh, work with them. And, you know, oftentimes I had to go to those countries. Uh, we'd always uh, start by going to the U.S. Embassy. So your first visit is to the, the embassy and you get the do's and don'ts. This is who you're going to meet. This is who that person is. Uh, and kind of the whole culture of that that country, um, but had an opportunity to work with people now, from now, all over now the now world. What, what countries you you had the opportunity to travel to? Uh, that went you really, to, that you really enjoy. Uh, Japan, uh, you know, been to um, different parts of Europe, um, been uh, to South America, been to Canada. Um, yeah, been different places. I had employees that went just about everywhere. <laughs> okay, that was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And yo, what what type of people did you hire? Um. What what was the the job description description and the lot of engineers, lot of com computer scientists. Uh, had economists on my staff because we had to do a business case for the investments that we were going to make. Uh, I had accountants on my staff. I had, uh, you know, several leaders or executives that were direct reports. So really covered the gambit. Yeah, if you had a billion dollar budget, I mean, that's, you had Koch Block. That's what you call it. What is it again? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you already yeah. want to hire. Yeah. They ain't going to 
look for go look for somebody to take care of that if they didn't do it. So that made a big difference. I really I wanted to get back to this. I got to figure how to get back to this <clears throat> with the with the arena of aviation and uh, surveillance. Mm -hmm. Now you say that was not a because you did say the CNS? Calm, nav, and surveillance. All right. Now, y'all created the CNS, mm -hmm. not CNI, <laughs> CNS, right? <laughs> no CNS. But y'all, a component of surveillance was just to see where each plane is at any given time. So we can keep them safe. We can keep everybody safe. But NASA uses the exact same system, I would have guessed, right? Uh, NASA has their own system. Okay. NASA, NASA has a, their own system. No, we, so we, we don't uh, use the same technology for spacecraft that we use for airplanes. So when the government saying they're doing surveillance, <laughs> what, <laughs> you, 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 what, what, are, what are they saying? What do they, they mean they're doing surveillance? Actually, I'm not sure. I mean, I know what surveillance means in a aviation construct. The word surveillance can take on, you know, a definition almost in any different definition in any conversation. Uh -huh. So, you know, the aviation context is very specific to understanding where the aircraft is and safety. You know, the bigger government context, I'm not so sure. All right. Now, you think the government got you under surveillance? No, no, I'm off the grid. You're off the grid. <laughs> They're going to keep out you for the next 10 years. They, you know, you got enough information to go sit, talk to other countries. So you think, you think they're going to get you I, off the grid? I signed out. I signed out. I'm gone. You think you're off the grid. I'm you got the information grid. that other countries can use. <laughs> so you can easily go sit down with other countries and, I mean, but it's nothing, it's no big deal, which is I'm in, I'm in little old. East Baton Rouge <laughs> Parish, Louisiana. <laughs> well, I don't want you to get me in no trouble either. Then. Now, so, so what? What is next for for, for Pamela? What's your middle name, Pam? Denise. Pamela Denise Whitley. What's next for Pam? Uh, enjoy retirement. Um, you know, I've had a, a great career. Uh, you know, worked hard. Uh, you know, achieved. You know, more than I could ever imagine, you know, being a, a, a young girl from Easy Town. So, you know, I, I do believe that life is to be lived. Uh, I will do some things. I will do, you know, some consulting work here and there. I work with, um, you know, community organizations, uh, of course. Uh, do a lot of work through the sorority or various organizations that I am. I am on several boards. I'm on the uh, board of the Transportation Federal Credit Union. Uh, I'll soon be joining the board of uh, the Exxon Mobile YMCA. Uh, I'm on the board. With brother Ron Smith. Yeah, with Ron Smith. I'm on the board of the Air Traffic Control Organization. So. Uh, those things keep me very kind of active day to day, uh, but pretty much I'm I'm really kind of diving into the retirement thing and gonna discover what this is all about. <laughs> all right, there you you didn't put your time in, but you still got a lot of time <laughs> left. 
You know, you your mom lived a, a long and prosperous life, so, and also your dad and grandparents. Mm -hmm. So we know that's a lot of great things uh, for you. <clears throat> but also, I want to let, let our audience know we've been here almost three hours. We ain't had not, not one piece of chicken or fish. <laughs> I, th I thought she was cooking. She told you she was buying some fish from Tony's yesterday. I thought she was going to be frying some fish for us. They had the girl here, and you were fed her. Now, you know, she's she been in, in D.C. too long. You know, in the South, we got to feed <laughs> But anyway, we'd like to thank uh, Ms. Pam Denise Whitley for ha giving us the opportunity to sit here well, and to, uh, to hear such a wonderful, beautiful story of travel, your journey, and you and you give it. You say it with so much joy and energy, you know, that you truly enjoyed what you did. So you really have lived a very prosperous life because you was. You enjoyed what you did, so that, that's a beautiful thing. I did, I did. And we'd like to thank you for, for being and participating with Count Time and Smart Brother Media. And please tune in when this wonderful podcast comes out because you're going to enjoy it. Okay. Thank you, Miss Whitley. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Man can shackle the hands. Man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.